Exodus chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be working from there today here at Sedaris. We love just going through books of the Bible at a time because we, we know and we've experienced that the, that the scriptures are our life to, uh, to God's people. Uh, they strengthen uh, God's people. They encourage God's people. But more than that, these scriptures uh, can and also do have the great potential to be life to those outside the church as well. And so we're always rolling up our sleeves and getting into the Bible. We're working through Exodus right now. It's a book of the Bible called Exodus. And uh, so if you don't know where it is, if you open up your Bible, it's just the second book. So if you're in Genesis, keep on turning to the right. If you open up your Bible, you get to any other book, go to the left and you look for Exodus. And when you get to Exodus, look for the big number six in there. That's the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers in the Bible. And so turn over to that big number six and we'll see you there, okay? Well, if you turned in last week, you'll remember that Israel is in a slump of disappointment. After showing up in Egypt with God's plans to free the Israelites, Moses and Aaron, they went to the Israelite elders to get them on board. They said, God is going to free us and it's going to be great. And the Israelite leaders are like, that's awesome. Let's do that. Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh. They ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go into the wilderness to worship for three days, just a holiday weekend. Pharaoh says no, and in his rage, he makes their labors even difficult, even more difficult. This suffering people group is now oppressed even further by Pharaoh. And, and, and this is a huge setback for the whole Israelite community, understandably so. They were already in slavery. They were already in bondage. And now it has gotten even worse. Fer, uh, Moses and Aaron showed up on the scene and they said, it's, it's going to get better. God's going to deliver you. And the first thing they experience is it getting worse. And in light of this setback, the Israelite leaders, if you remember last week, they essentially accuse Moses and Aaron of making up their own plan. They say, God didn't tell you this. You just told us that God tell you this. May God judge you. So they're calling God to curse Moses and Aaron. And Moses, at this point, is just ready to give up himself. He's ready to give up, and so he cries out to God. He cries out to God, and he said this. It's actually a couple verses before chapter 6. Verse 22 of chapter 5, So Moses went back to the Lord and he asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did, you, why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. Do you feel his anguish? Do you feel, do you feel his confusion? Do you feel his disappointment? God, I was trying to do it your way, and it's not working. <laughs> It's not working. Why, why are we even doing this, God? I'm, doing, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Where are you at? Where are you at, God? Have you ever felt this way? But all, this disappointment doesn't catch God by surprise. God, he's not inconvenienced by it. He's not offended by this disappointment. He's not threatened by it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God allows disappointments in our lives so that we reach out to him just like Moses did. God actually hopes that in frustration, confusion, anger, disappointment, that we look up to him and we shout, why God? Why are you doing this? I'm holding up my end, but where are you? Why does God hope that it eventually comes to this? Because he wants to answer that question. God wants to answer that question. 
You see, the God of these scriptures isn't a God who abandons his people. He's not a God who's distant from his people, who, who doesn't leave them in these moments, but speaks into these moments. He, he doesn't forsake us when we're at the end of our rope, but he shows up and he opens up our minds, he opens up our eyes to what he's actually up to in our midst. That's why God has brought us to this point. You see, God has already told Moses, yes, that this mission that he's tasked him with is going to be wrought with setbacks. But now for the first time, God tells Moses why that is the case. And so, have you ever cried out to God, why? Why, God? If so, Exodus chapter 6 is for you. It's for you. God, he answers Moses' confusion and he answers our confusion here in, in, in these chapters. And, and I'm just going to put the big idea up front. I'm not going to make you guess it. We're going to just, I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to unpack what it looks like in these coming chapters. When we're, when we're trying to do it God's way, and it all goes sideways, we look up to God, and we cry out, why? God answers, and his answers, his answer, he, he lets us know, he reveals to us, he illuminates the power dynamics that are at play in the world around us that we can't see, that we don't know about, that he has to roll up his sleeves and deal with. That is what uh, Exodus chapter 6 and 7 are all about. And when he gives Moses this answer, Moses finds the energy to keep doing it God's way. Moses is able to get up, brush himself off, and take the steps forward that he needs to do in order to continue God's plan here, okay? So, so let's get started. Let's unpack what the why, I, I want you to see it, the why that God gives Moses. So chapter 6, verse 1, God answers Moses in his confusion, in his anger, in his frustration, in his disappointment. God isn't upset with it. He answers it. But the Lord replied to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them, that's the Israelites, from his land. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by my name, says the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Now, we've heard versions of this already in the book of Exodus. We've talked about the name of God. It follows. So it's like, well, wow, like, God seems like a bit of a hot shot here, doesn't he? <laughs> like, ooh, big man, huh? How are we to think of this? Well, I want to point back to what the, the general theme of Exodus is that we've pointed to time and time again, okay? The goal, God's end goal with the Israelites isn't just to rescue them from slavery, Sorry, guys. There we go. I just need a little more slack. Okay. God's end goal with the Israelites is not to rescue them from slavery. That's not what he's trying to do. He does want to do that, and he will do that, but he is moving them out of slavery in order to move them into worship of him as their true God. And so what we find here, and God tells Moses this, he says, I'm allowing, I'm even orchestrating a set of events, a series of setbacks and frustrations so difficult so that the deliverance of the Israelites can only be explained by my power so that they will worship me. 
so that they will see me as redeemer. Redeem is used here. For the first time in the whole Bible, God will redeem his people. God will purchase his people. And when, when, someone, when something is purchased, it belongs to the purchaser. God is, is, tra- is trying to redeem his people such that they will look to him and say, we belong to you. This tells us that they're going to have a choice as those who are purchased. They can, they can refuse to not worship God, not belong to God. But God says, I'm going to do it so powerfully so that when they do look at me, they will see me as redeemer and want to belong to me and worship me. That's what's going on here. And and so, friends, I don't know what setbacks you're experiencing, what disappointments you're experiencing, heck, what even, even bondage you might be experiencing and what freedom you are seeking. I don't know what confusion you're experiencing with regards to, to ongoing difficulties, pain, and suffering, but I do know that whatever it is, God wants to deliver you from it. And not just deliver you from it, but see, but deliver you from it in such a way that you see him as, as him who has redeemed you and bought you from that so that you might give him glory and worship him. And so what I'm doing is I'm asking you, it's just a long-winded way of asking you to entertain the question, what if God has allowed all of this pain in your life? I don't know what it is for you. All of this suffering in your life, to be certain, the Israelites were in this pain and suffering of slavery. What if God has allowed all of it so that when he powerfully delivers you, you will recognize that he did it and worship him as a result? You see, deliverance is where worship of God is rooted. It's where trusting in God comes from, you could say. And and it's not just about trusting God in in a vague sense. It's about trusting God when we're at our lowest or in our most vulnerable points. And and scriptures have have a special word and a special concept for when we trust God from our our most vulnerable, our our, our weakest, our, our most oppressed places in our lives. It's called a refuge. Seeing God is our refuge. This is an element of trusting God, not just when things are going well, but when things are going terrible. Leaning into God is our refuge in the midst of pain and suffering. Refuge. King David, several centuries after this account, became king of Israel, but, but not after a long season of suffering that actually came due to circumstances that God orchestrated in his life. God did a very awkward thing with King David, Do you know this story? God told Samuel, the prophet of Israel, big prophet of Israel who's in charge of of everything, essentially kind of administratively he had power. Uh, It's just incredible the amount of power that that Samuel had when you read uh, 1 Samuel. It's very uh, political, this Samuel. Samuel shows up into David's house one day and anoints him king while there's a king on the throne. Oof. Very awkward. Very awkward situation. God tells Samuel to do this. And for the next several years, the reigning king of Israel hunts David down to try to kill him. Allows setbacks and suffering and difficulty into David's life orchestrated by God himself. And and, and at one point, King Saul has David cornered in a cave. And David says this. This comes from Psalm 57.1. Put up here. David says this, be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, 
for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. Be gracious to me, God. I will seek refuge in you. God, you got me into this, but I'm going to seek refuge in you. And David did experience deliverance from God. This psalm is evidence that because he took refuge in God, it led to his worship of God. It's one of the most beautiful psalms, I think, in the canon. And then he wrote 70 more, very similar to it. God redeemed David and it set him on a path to being, to, to, to worship. But why does God work in this way? It's quite unpleasant, isn't it? Ooh, we're getting boomy again, Nate, I don't know why. Um, it's quite unpleasant, isn't it? There, there's got to be a better way to do this. <laughs> well, God works this way in, in, our, in our circumstances, I think, to point to a deeper reality of oppression that is present in the world that, that, aren't, that isn't necessarily circumstance-based, but is always there lurking. And that's sin. Just, just look at the parallels here. Sin is oppressive. It brings disappointment, discouragement, setbacks. We often feel powerless before it. We cannot overcome it ourselves, but only by seeking refuge in God. And in the first century Israel, there's a common phenomenon that would happen in the springtime, where uh, in the springtime, these winds would rip through Israel. They just rip through it, and it would incite a lot of fires. You know, people uh, back then, they just had a lot of open campfires for cooking and, and all, th- things like this. And it would start these fires that, that would just rip through uh, farms and, and the countryside. And, and, and after the fires were over, the farmers, they would go into their, into their property, they would walk through their property to see the extent of the damage, and they would see these little mounds of ash all over the ground. And when they would go over to the mound of ash and, and kick it over, they would find a handful of baby chicks underneath. You see, what, what would happen was, uh, they, they found out was that the, the, the mother hens, when these fires were coming, they would gather all the chicks to themselves and unable to outrun the fire, they would hunker down over their baby chicks and they would take the brunt of the fire themselves, killing them, but saving their baby chicks. And this is the same imagery that Jesus picked up on. Jesus picked up on this imagery in Matthew 23 at one point to describe his relationship with the sinful humanity. He said, he said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, Jesus, he conceived of himself, and he, he, he conceived himself, and he, he acted, and this is why he went to the cross. He saw himself as the refuge for humanity from sin as the refuge for humanity from the consequences of sin. He saw the judgment of God that was coming into the world against sin. And he says, I want to gather you under my wings. I want to take the brunt of that judgment into myself to the point where it kills me, that you might find refuge. So we're going to see this happen in Egypt as well. There's going to be a judgment that sweeps through Egypt called the Passover that only those who take refuge in God will survive. And this Passover is a type. This is what the, the Lord's Supper is all about. It, it sets up what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was 
sparing all who would take refuge in him by faith from the judgment of God, the judgment of God that was coming into the world. So let's recap to get where we are at this point, okay? God allows and perhaps even orchestrates setbacks and suffering for us. We respond faithfully, even though it might feel like it's unfaithful, by screaming why at him, <laughs> by even getting upset. He can take it, it's okay. It's okay to be upset with God. That's what, that's what last week was all about. That's a faithful response. I'm confused why God, okay? God answers, and his answer is two-part. He doubles down on his promise to deliver, and he invites us to trust him as a refuge. Why? So that when God does deliver us, it'll lead us to worship. Now, now God wants Moses to share this very same answer with the rest of the Israelites, and this is their response. Verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him. They don't listen. But Moses is very empathetic of their not listening. Look at the second half of the verse. Because of their broken spirit and their hard labor. Uh, Broken spirit actually isn't metaphorical here. Uh, Spirit in Hebrew is the same word. Uh, It it is the word breath, ruach. And so really what what Moses is pointing at to is like Pharaoh is pushing these people so hard they, they can't really even breathe. They're just trying to catch their breath on a day-to-day basis so they couldn't listen. Moses lets them off the hook a little bit here. They're being just pushed so hard they can't breathe. It, it's hard for suffocated people to get their hopes up is what Moses is saying. They can't listen. Then God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh again. God tells Moses, okay, so the Israelites don't listen. Now go tell Pharaoh the same thing. <laughs> Verse 10, then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. So Moses' response is, hey, he's not going to listen to me, God. Uh, The Israelites didn't listen to me. This guy, he's definitely not for me. Uh, He's not going to listen to me either. And God responds, yeah, I know. I actually made it so he wouldn't listen to you, Moses. Uh, Him listening to you isn't the point. And God's response is actually all the way over in chapter 7. We have this awkward genealogical kind of parenthetical statement here that's in the rest of chapter 6. So skip over to 7. I'll I'll show you God's response here. 7-1, the Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I have commanded you, and then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from this land, from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people. So these people are going to come out in military divisions. They're not going to flee like an unorganized mob. God says, in my power, they're going to march out as free slaves. Not flee, they're going to march out of here as military divisions out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So did you catch the why there? why God's sending Moses and Aaron now to Pharaoh? It's the same reason. So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 
You see, Moses isn't going to Pharaoh over and over and over again to try to change Pharaoh's mind, to try to convince Pharaoh and change his mind in the moment. We're going to see that next week as Dave walks through the plagues. That's not why Moses is good. That's not why God has Moses going there. He's going to Pharaoh over and over again for the same reason that he wanted uh, 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 Moses to go to the Egyptian or the, the Israelite elders and tell them what was going to happen. So that when God's power is displayed, the Egyptians will know who is responsible. They will recognize it as the power of the Israelite God. Same reason. The same reason. God sends them, knows, knows, knows that Pharaoh's not going to listen to him, but says, I'm calling my shot. I'm calling my shot, Moses. He's not going to listen to you now, but when it happens, people are going to be able to perk up their ears. They're, they're going to be able to see it. You see, God wasn't sharing uh, with Moses uh, to tell uh, Pharaoh what to do in order to convince the Pharaoh to get ready. Hey, Pharaoh, get, get on board or else. No, he's calling his shot so that as many people as possible might be able to likewise worship God. In Egypt, Egyptians. This is how God reveals himself to his people and to the world. He calls his shot. He sends messengers like Moses and Aaron to tell people how God's power is going to manifest in their midst. People naturally reject it because it's outlandish. Really, they're going to march out of here? <laughs> like, they're just going to up and leave with order and dignity? Now they haven't had order and dignity for decades. Everyone rejects it, even the Egyptians, because it's crazy. But here's a spoiler alert. It works. It works. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 12, Exodus 12, 38, we find that a multitude of Egyptians leave with the Israelites out of Egypt. This is how God works. If, if you read through the prophetic literature of Israel, God is calling outlandish shots over and over and over again. The, the prophets said crazy things. The Messiah will come out of Nazareth. The Jews said nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Jesus raised in Nazareth. The prophets said, this Messiah will suffer and die. The Jews said, any prophet that suffers and dies, especially on a tree like Jesus did, is cursed by God. See, someone die like that, I guess God wasn't with him. But God is calling a shot. You see, this is actually for us today nothing short of a strategy for sharing uh, about God and about Jesus with those who are skeptical. You don't necessarily need to conceive of evangelism as trying to persuade and convince someone in the moment of like the deity of Jesus or, or things like this. That, that's likely just going to end up in an argument and no one's going to go anywhere. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a stubborn person. I've tried it like 10 times and it doesn't work. <laughs> don't make it an argument. That's not the primary way to think about evangelism. Now with some people, they do really want to think and reason through these things and like let's, let's weigh out like different things that could happen and it's a really fun experience for them. For most, probably not. But it's for us today and we know it is because actually first, uh, Peter picks up on it in 1 Peter 3. I'll throw it on the screen here. First Peter 3 up there. If not, I can turn over to it. Oh, there it is. This is Peter speaking to uh, Christians in Asia Minor. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or, or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. You see, what Peter's saying here is in light of a society that's skeptical, be ready to logically defend Christianity. Oh, wait, oh, no, he doesn't say that at all. He says, be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope within you. He individualizes it to a certain extent. What's the hope within you? Now, when we combine this with the Exodus account, which I'm pretty sure uh, Peter uh, knew about and he had in mind, it means a couple of things. One is to be open and and vulnerable, vulnerable about the present pains in your life that you're seeking refuge from, that you're seeking God's refuge for. Be open and vulnerable about that. Now, you don't have to overshare, but God is always showing up in the Christian's life. If, if Christians are growing, it means that God is always showing up in their lives and powerfully delivering them from those pains, little pains in your lives that, that you feel, the things that you're disappointed with God from, seek refuge in them. What would it look like to be open and vulnerable with others? about that. For example, if if God is real, he's showing up in your life in the midst of coronavirus, if you're seeking refuge from him, or for for him, if you're seeking refuge in him, I'm messing up my preposition, sorry. But if God is real, you're seeking refuge in him in the midst of the pains of coronavirus, and, and, and ideally, he is going to show up at some point. He's, as, as you continue to, to take refuge in him, he's going to show up and deliver you, and you're going to experience that life and the people around you are going to be like, whoa, you were not okay, and now you are okay. Why are you okay like that? And now you have an opportunity to share a reason for the hope that's within you. You have an opportunity to point to the power that God unleashed in your lives. The other thing it means is to get clear on the big deliverance event in your life. Now, this is slightly different for all of us. Uh, perhaps when you were at the end of your rope, you felt God reach out to you at one point and say that he loved you, and it was a powerful experience, and you knew he was real. That's the reason for your hope. Perhaps uh, you encountered the Bible over a season, and the power of the scriptures. Those convinced you that God was real, and that that he was worth following. That was God powerfully moving in your life. Now, I don't know what it is for you, but why the heck are you a Christian? That's what Peter's asking. Why are you a Christian? What's the reason for the hope within you? Take 15 minutes to think about it. Write it down into a 30-second elevator pitch. You have about 30 seconds in the world out there. 30 seconds with somebody to tell them why you're Christian. If they, when they ask before they stop listening, usually. Get, get that elevator pitch ready is what Peter's saying. You see, because God moves in our world. His power is displayed all the time. The problem is that people don't recognize it. But if you tell people how God has moved powerfully in your life, when he starts to move powerfully in their life, they'll be able to see it. They'll be able to see it. That's why Moses is telling this to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, so that when God moves powerfully, they'll be able to see it. They'll be able to respond. They'll be able to consider whether it's him, which is the first step to worshiping, to moving out of slavery and into worship. Now, so, the, so that, that's this response. That's the why. God answers Pharaoh's why. Why are you sending me to the Israelite leaders? Israelite, re, Israelite leaders. Sorry, guys, I have a new baby. Didn't get much sleep. 
uh, why are you sending me to Pharaoh? God answers those questions. And then, but we skipped over this genealogy. What is that there for? You know, we skipped over it, much like we all do in our regular Bible reading anyways, right? I mean, come on, who reads it? Raise your hand. No one reads it. See, no one raised their hand. Great. No one reads these things. Um, You can admit that here's a safe place, okay? Um, But let me tell you something about uh, biblical genealogies. You see, uh, nowadays we track our genealogies because we want to know where we came from. We want to know if there's anybody in our past that was famous, and genealogies are really fun in that way. But, But biblical genealogies are a little bit different. They're placed in certain places in the Bible to communicate certain points, certain places for certain points. And we're not going to read through this here, um, but the point here goes in line with the power dynamics that are, that are happening on each side of it, okay? Um, I, we're not going to read through it. Like I said, I just want to point you to the artifact that the author is really wanting us to notice, bring it to life for you. It's in verse 20, 620, and it goes like this. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So here we have genealogy. It includes some 40, 45 men and women, 40, 45 marriages, one illegitimate marriage, an incestuous marriage, a marriage that God is going to give Moses laws prohibiting in just a few short months after they come out of Egypt. And its offspring are Moses and Aaron. They are inbreds. Their father married his aunt. And, and, and it's put here like this because it was ugly and it was broken to the Israelites then and it's ugly and broken to us now. Why is it here? It's ugly. Well, aside from not recognizing God's power and this deliverance, who's the biggest threat to stealing God's credit here? It's Moses and Aaron. It's, it's Moses and Aaron. The danger is that people say, Look at what Moses and Aaron have done for us. Look, God's going to move through them in very powerful ways, like things that Moses and Aaron do are going to be the things that unleash God's power into the world. And so they really are at danger of of people mistaking God's power for their power. And so we have this genealogy that belittles them, that humiliates them. So that people, when all this starts to happen, they'll be able to say, only God. He's shoving the brokenness and the ugliness of the central leaders in our faces. And we've already seen it, of course. Moses is clearly admitted to to murder. He's clearly admitted that he's a coward. He's clearly admitted that he has zero, zero charisma of his own. But in case you forgot, here we have that even from birth, him and his brother were inbred. Now, it's gross. Makes us feel a little bit gross. You can feel it. You can feel it. But here's what's beautiful about it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your family was like. It doesn't matter what happened to you in your childhood. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are not disqualified from not only the love of God, but by being someone who he can use in the world to to bring his power into it so that others can know that he loves them and wants to redeem them as well. It doesn't matter what you've done. God can use everything. And in fact, 
these terrible things that, that in the eyes of men and women disqualify you, when God looks at it and he sees them, those are the very things that qualify you. Because it's much, much, even more likely that God is going to get the credit and not some charismatic person who comes from a perfect upbringing, who has a perfect life on the outside, who has it all put together. But all of a sudden, God is showing up in the midst of this person? Wow. He must be powerful. He must be. We run the Alpha Course every year. We're actually going to be running a, a hybrid alpha course here in the upcoming couple of months. Stay tuned. The alpha is a time where, where uh, a, a bunch of Christians and non-Christians who really want to know who Jesus was, like, let's get clear on this. They come together, they ask the big questions about it. And, and, and in these talks, uh, we kind of watch a, a talk from, from some British people, because everybody loves British people. British people are intelligent. They, they make you feel good when they talk. It's great. The most powerful times in these British talks are when these British criminals and homeless people talk about how God moved powerfully in their lives. Because our disposition is like, God could never use somebody like that. And God says, that's exactly who I use. Look at Moses and Aaron. Look at it. So they don't disqualify you. They qualify you. Everybody has a place to play in the kingdom of God. Everybody can scatter the seeds of the gospel no matter what. The gospel is the, the great equalitarian religion for everybody. Everybody is able to, to, to step up and participate and have the power of the almighty God move through them. It's incredible. It's incredible. We have to move on. I want to stay on this point forever. We have to move on. Um, it's so good. Don't sell yourself short, people. Don't, God can do so much through you. All right, so it seems, it seems very simple, right? Tell people that God's going to show up, whether it be the, the people of God or the people who aren't the people of God. That, hey, it's coming. God's going to show up, and God shows up powerfully, and they're like, great. Now we can get on board with this and worship God. It's going to be simple, right? No. There's one more aspect of the power dynamics that are at play that really Exodus is all about. We get our first taste of it here in 7, starting in verse, let's start in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle or, or show me a wondrous sign, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard. He did not listen to them as the Lord has, had said that he would not. You see, um, God, when he injects his power into the world, is not injecting his power in a neutral environment, in a spiritually neutral environment. He's injecting his power into a world that already has spiritual dark powers at work. Our, our author here is very, very careful to, to make sure to provide the details that we need in order to understand that the no sleight of hand is happening here. You know, this isn't uh, Aaron kind of, anybody do that rubber thing with their pencil in grade school? You know, this isn't Aaron just making his staff rubber. He's throwing it on the ground. This isn't like any sleight of hand with like Moses tugging on it with a string back there, you know? 
This thing ate stuff. Pharaoh's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. Making sure that, hey, this really happened. And in antiquity, it was really common for rulers to pit their gods against each other like this, to pit their spiritual powers against each other like this. These are magicians. Uh, the magi show up to Jesus. They would have been similar, but they're from Persia. They were the Persian magi. Very common. You see how uh, Moses and Aaron, God says, hey, be ready for this. He's going to ask you to pit our powers against each other. Be ready. Do this when he asks you to do that. These people are clearly in touch with the spiritual realm as well. And this is something that we really, really need to highlight because, because we need to take it seriously. And I feel that so often Christians, uh, we, we, it feels weird to us. It feels like hocus pocus. And so we're like, eh, let's just kind of shrug our shoulders and move on from this. Maybe it's real, maybe it's not. But I don't, I don't know, it doesn't really seem to affect me much. So why, why deal with it? Well, because the scriptures are not concerned with exposing the other gods, small g, as powerless. That's not their aim. They're they're not trying to to kind of uh, puff up the God of Israel and say, this is the God and everything else. That's just kind of empty stuff. No. The scriptures are all about revealing that God is more powerful than all of the other powerfuls, all of the power tied to the other gods, small g. And his motives are truly for human flourishing, whereas the other spiritual powers have motives that are very self-serving and eventually lead to bondage and oppression such that the Israelites are in. Okay, so, so scripture doesn't dismiss other gods as powerless, but what thing, one thing that does happen, and we're going to see it over the course of Exodus here and throughout the rest of scriptures too, it does belittle them as much, much, much less powerful than Yahweh. You know, because these guys are powerful. They are turning snakes into staffs. The, the, the spiritual powers that Egypt leaned into in the past actually made them the biggest nation on, on the scene. It, it, I mean, their gods had been pitted against the gods of other nations in a lot of different ways, and they won out pretty significantly. They're ruling the day. They're the superpower. But Yahweh is greater still, and that's what we are going to see over the rest of the Exodus account. You see, David is going to beat the Goliath that beat all the other warriors in the ancient world. Yahweh is going to beat Goliath here. It's a showdown that Pharaoh himself invited. It's a showdown the magicians are able to duplicate. They kind of lose out because they get eaten. But it's going to continue to happen throughout the plagues. What we're going to see is the magicians try to imitate the plagues. They're going to do it with the first one. They're going to do it with the second one. They're going to do it with the third one, and they can't. Or they're going to try with the third one, and they can't. And then one of the interesting dynamics we're going to see over the ten plagues is they start to get more and more and more anxious. It starts bubbling up that they realize, oh no, our powers are nothing compared to Yahweh's. Nothing. They plead with Pharaoh, just let him go. This is going to get even worse. Now, one of the things we need to take from this is, is we need to recognize there's a spiritual battle between God and the dark spiritual forces of this world that present themselves in the occult. Very real, very real. Anybody who has been in the world can testify to some crazy things that they have seen, things that do defy logic. And therefore, these are things that do defy Yahweh, the God of Israel, Jesus Christ, and something very dangerous for us as Christians to play with. 
And if, if you didn't know, Seattle's been a hub for a long time, actually, of the spiritual occult. Uh, the spiritual New Age movement, which really brings a lot of occult practices and, and leans on a lot of occult practices. Uh, actually, Seattle was made one of the hubs in the world for the Seattle New Age movement. I don't know if you knew this, back in the 70s. And it's really been one ever since. Uh, and, and, and so you can go out into the city, you can go to the occult practices, you can see the shops, you can get the card readings, you can have the fortune, t- the, the fortune tellings done for you. You can lean into all these things. You can find that Wicca chapter. You can lean into it. You can see some crazy stuff. I mean, Dave and I, we've seen some crazy things in our ministry here at Sedaris of the occult presenting its head, the occult that, that, has, that has tormented and, and, and really made pathetic human beings out of Christians who went to it and decided to try to see if the promises of the occult were true for themselves. Instead, they found bondage, they found slavery, they found a miserable, miserable existence. Now, God is able to deliver it. I'm not up here to try to scare you guys and say, oh, we've got to watch out because we can't overcome it. What I am saying is that when we dabble with it, that oppression sneaks into our lives because there is very real power in it. God is more powerful is what this is all about, though. So we need not fear. We need not fear but we should take it seriously. And when our friends, we see our friends dabbling in it, we should let them know, hey, I think that's really serious stuff. I understand you're telling me that crazy stuff is happening and it's really cool, but it's not gonna go down a road of life that you think it is. Okay, that, that's, that's what it's all about here. The occult practices, we're gonna be unpacking how God is greater than them through the rest of the book of Exodus. And so we don't need to fear them, okay? Now, This may feel like an entirely different topic from what we were talking about earlier, okay? But remember, it's all under the greater theme of what's happening in this book and what God's revealing to Moses. He's trying to open Moses' eyes up to the power dynamics at play, okay? God's power is about to show up in the world. God has told his messenger Moses that it's coming. Moses trusts God. God tells Moses to tell his people, the Israelites. It seems so outlandish that the suffering people of God, they can't believe Moses. God knew they wouldn't believe, but Moses tells them anyway. God sends Moses to let Pharaoh know that the, the, to let Pharaoh and the Egyptians know that he's about to work powerfully. God knew that they wouldn't listen. He orchestrates their stubbornness. Why do it at all? Because God even wanted to move the Egyptians out. And finally, we see that God's power is going to be squaring off against all the power of the, that the Egyptians have. And, and so what I've been trying to show you that it's, is that it's all the same for us today. Exodus is just the beautiful, I mean, that's why we're in Exodus, is because this is how salvation works. This is how God's power has worked in the lives of his people uh, from here to the present. This is how God works. His power will show up and deliver you. Believe me, you can trust him and take refuge as him. His power is going to break into your life over and over and over again to rescue you, to put you on a firm foundation. And I hope that you recognize it when it happens and worship him. I hope that you in turn can, can let this world know how God delivered you. Let them know that, that this is how he could powerfully deliver them as well, even though they won't listen. So that when it does happen, they'll begin to consider God and worship him. And I hope that we remember that there are spiritual powers at play trying to keep people from recognizing God as the true power. See, these are the power dynamics that are at play when the people of God are confused and look up to him and ask, why God? God says, no, open your eyes. 
There's so much more going on than just your suffering. And he will move powerfully to execute his plan of deliverance to redeem his people.